while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm Marcello Rolando, your host, The Reasonable Voice. And my guest today, I'm very pleased to have, is Jack Robertson. Jack Robertson is the Fisk and Marie Kimball Librarian at Monticello's Jefferson Library. I hope you are as impressed with that as I am, because I just met Jack the other night at the at the wedding of a mutual friend who happens to be one of the directors at Preservation Virginia. Good afternoon, Jack. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, I'm pleased to have you. A little more about Jack. Prior to being the librarian at Monticello's Jefferson Library, Jack directed the University of Virginia's Fisk Kimball Fine Arts Library for 13 years. So clearly, he knows his way around history and libraries. He's also worked at the National Gallery of Art Library. We're going to talk about that first in a moment, because we have something in common there. And he worked at Vanderbilt University's Art Library. So he's taught at Vanderbilt, uh, at the University of Maryland, at the University of Virginia, and currently teaches classes for UVA's OLLI program. I want to ask him about that, too, because people have told me I should be more familiar with that, so I want to be. Jack, I'm so glad you were a guest today, and I'd like to talk to you first. When, when I was working my way through college... I did summer jobs uh, for the federal government, and I'd work nighttime on some kind of fast food or whatever they called it back then to work my way through college and to have a car at the same time. My parents said they'd, they'd pay everything if I, if I worked and paid for the car. <laughs> anyway, all this to say, for a time, I worked at the Federal Trade Commission, which you know is across the street from the National Gallery of Art. And for yeah. each lunch that I was there that summer, I would go sit in a room and stare at the art. I'd just sit on one of those backless benches I'm sure you're familiar with and just turn and take a day for each room. I never will forget the experience. And I just want to say, um, I, there is a question here somewhere, but when I saw that in your bio, I thought, Finally, I can say this to someone who really can tell me 
how I felt. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk to us about well, that. No, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I, my experience uh, working at the library in the East Wing of the National Gallery was I would take lunch breaks and I would uh, sit uh, near the Andrew Mellon Fountain. Oh, yes. Which you'll be acquainted with because yes. it's right at the apex of the Federal Trade yes. Building and right opposite the main entrance of the, the West Gallery of the National Gallery. So, uh, uh, we maybe we may have, yeah. spied each other as we were trudging back to work. Who knows? That's true. Would that be something? I tell you, life is funny. But again, yes. uh, I do want to talk about Jack and, and an impressive career. Uh, I'm so glad we we met the other night at the wedding. So let's start with, well. Where is Monticello's Jefferson Library located, and why should everyone visit it? How's that? We are located uh, on land that was part of Jefferson's historic plantation. Uh, We are on the grounds of the Kenwood Estate. Uh, That is... uh, just to the east of the main driving entrance entrance to Monticello, mm-hmm. and we are open to the public. Uh, we are open only bankers' hours, nine to five, uh-huh. Monday to Friday. <laughs> uh, we do arrange special events and special uh, times when uh, I or someone can meet with people here at other hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, were, were a very small staff. We have uh, three librarians, counting myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have three dozen volunteers. We are not really equipped for drop-in people. Uh, mm. uh, we welcome, though, anyone to contact us and Make an make arrangement, make a make an appointment to come and use our resources and services. So that's always very gratifying. Um, so and let me just insert right here: library at monticello.org is the uh, the email, the key to get in touch with us, and then we will respond. Uh, so that's uh, that's how that works. Well, you know, it's it's and I understand out of necessity the. The, uh, the size of your staff, et cetera, and the hours open and, and all that you have to be doing in addition to the people coming to the library. I didn't realize, I'm glad I asked, because I didn't realize one couldn't just drop in, but I love the idea. One can email you and basically make an appointment to sort of have a semi-private uh, uh, exposure to the to the uh, Monticello's Jefferson Library. That's how it works. Yes. Yeah. Yep, that's correct. That's correct. And that same email is also uh, what we ask people to use to send us any sort of query. Oh. So we uh, we need people to send us something in writing, any question, uh, any topic related to Thomas Jefferson's life and times and legacy. Uh, that is our scope uh, of activity. That's the that's the that defines our uh, collection scope and our um, our expertise in helping people find whatever. And that's really part of what I what I dearly love. The scope uh, is 
almost infinite. Uh, wow. We are a library focusing on one man. Well, consider the man. Yes. Uh, he, he was everything, a polymath. Yes. Uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, and his legacy has just expanded that. He is um, so universal that the the questions and comments and the work being done by teachers and students and scholars is really, it's as big as a university, really. Oh, wow. Well, you know, you have anticipated my next question, I think, but we can go on with it anyway. We always hear about presidential libraries every time there's a president and especially when they're about to leave office but what is really the their mission the mission of a presidential library and i know you've sort of you've touched on that but can you go into some more details specifically as it applies to thomas jefferson yes yes i will do that now it's important to realize that uh presidents from herbert hoover on to the present are given what we call presidential libraries, and those are run by the federal government, uh-huh. the, the National Archives and Records Administration. All presidents prior to Hoover are standalone. Uh-huh. So, and I've actually been doing a pretty thorough study of presidential libraries, which is an ongoing you know, kind of a hobby of mine, but uh-huh. uh, the the diversity of the sites, the, the home sites, the research libraries, uh, the the places where uh, archives are held. So it's mm. only in the federal presidential libraries that the White House archives are kept. Oh. And that really is the primary function of the federal presidential libraries. They do not support research in the type of comprehensive way that we do with Jefferson. Uh-huh. So we collect comprehensively. We have uh, all types of, of physical material, and mm-hmm. we also have rather vast collections of full-text archival materials. So, mm. for example, we have, uh, we have over 100 databases that uh, have been created that, not by us, by, by commercial firms, uh-huh. but we've been able to acquire uh, what really amounts to a collection of about 200 million full-text titles. Wow. Oh uh, so, it's really, uh, <clears throat> it's really the kind of breadth and depth that scholars and Monticello staff Mm -hmm. need to have access to in order to uh, explore and interpret and create publications and exhibitions on Thomas Jefferson. So it's an interesting distinction between the federal presidentials and the the, uh, earlier uh, presidents. Uh, There are a number of presidents who have what they call presidential libraries, Woodrow Wilson and Stanton, yes, yes. for example. And, and uh, uh, but one sure. of the joys I have of being at the Jefferson Library is that I'm, I'm in charge. I deal with the collections and the services and the databases and the researchers. I deal with the clogged up toilets and the <laughs> lights that are burned out. <laughs> well, that's quite a that's quite a range of responsibilities. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what? but 
but uh, so we have we we have libraries for um, Woodrow Wilson and Rutherford B. Hayes mm. and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, and. George Washington, Mount Vernon has an extraordinary uh, library yes. that does what we do for Thomas Jefferson, but we are not federal, mm-hmm. and we are not in any way connected. So that's really what I'm interested in, mm. in exploring what we have done with Thomas Jefferson and helping other uh, presidential sites yes. do the same thing. Oh, that's, you know, we... I, I'm speaking of everyone, but I'll just speak of me. I, I never, it never occurred to me that I knew about the federal system of, of presidential libraries, of course, but it didn't occur to me that the independent presidential sites weren't connected in, in some way. Why is that, and, 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 and how are you trying to correct, if that's the word, how are you trying to correct that situation? It's true because the uh, the 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 homes, uh, the uh, small uh, uh, commemorative sites for uh, uh, all of the 19th century and some of the 20th century uh, presidents have just been totally standalone. Mm. Uh, they range in governance, ownership and governance from state agencies or academic institution oversight mm-hmm. yes. to uh, local historical society or uh, uh, independent not-for-profit cultural heritage sites. Hmm. So that's true of Monticello and Mount Vernon and Montpelier mm-hmm. uh, up the road from us. Yes. For, um, uh, Madison. Uh, what's his name? James, <laughs> James Madison. James Madison, yes. yes. What I'm hoping to do, I've already been in touch with people at all of these sites mm-hmm. and have articulated the kind of the core, the, the common uh, characteristics of all of us yes. and the fact that we have no one to turn to. There's no society of or uh, organization of pre-NARA presidential libraries as we you know, talk about it in shorthand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I'm actually hoping that we can create an alliance. Yes. Something uh, not binding in any way, but mm-hmm. just a way so we can communicate. Yes, and, and uh, support each other. I mean, it is, after yes. all, yes, exactly. a, a line of succession. And, and a legacy of leaders that... Um, yes, yes. I am, you know, I am, I am surprised... But I'm so pleased to hear that this, I guess this has kind of turned into your, your major, uh, what is it there? That great Extracurricular activity. Ex- exactly. Okay, we'll call it that. But it's yeah. a huge uh, a purpose to adopt yes. for one's life. And, yes. um, and I, I think, um, well, I, I'm going to ask a question before I ask my question. How is... How is the library funded, the uh, Monticello Jefferson Library? How, how is it funded then? Well, it's funded in the way that Monticello is funded. It's ah. all private. We we receive no public money, mm-hmm. and so we uh, we we have a pretty substantial annual operating budget, mm-hmm. and 
we, like all of the other non-federal presidential sites, we rely on uh, not not public government funding, but the public, the yes. American people, to yes. come and visit us and pay admission tickets and uh, buy books in our museum shops. Mm-hmm. And then donations, of course, are uh, really part of the lifeblood. So the library is um, dependent on the financial management uh, that the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, uh, which is, I don't think we've mentioned, have we mentioned that yet? No, but, uh, I don't it's think. It's important to, to note that Monticello is owned and operated by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which yes. since 1923 has been the the incorporated foundation that does everything at Monticello. Wow. Okay. So I'll tell you why I asked that. I asked that before. I, I, I don't want to offend any donors out there, so I'm going to ask another question before I ask what are I have in mind. Are you going to ask if we accept donations? Uh, uh, no. Yes, I was, but that's what I'm going to ask now. Right. How does right. one donate to the library? How do you go about that? Do we go to a website? Do yeah. you have a donut? Yeah. You tell us. Yeah. You go, you go to monticello.org. That's the Monticello website. Oh. And uh, the Jefferson Library has a nice set of pages on Monticello's website, mm-hmm. but there are clear uh, places where people on the internet can go to donate uh, or, I should say, to uh, purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got we've got a pretty amazing retail operation, and now it's all it's all automated. Uh, I want to get into automated and online, but I'll let you carry on with your questions. <laughs> yes, we'll do that in the next seg- segment. Okay. When I the, okay. the original question I had, and I, I wanted to sort of lay the groundwork uh, with the two previous questions, is do you feel, well, let me, make, let me put it on me. I feel that Americans in general uh, don't have an appreciation for for their for our history uh, i don't mean they don't like it or they ignore it but i don't know that there's that same value and i'm going to confess so it makes it easier for them to hear what your answer may be when i first walked into a library as a student as i remember back in the days when they called the junior high school i was um i, I wasn't i didn't feel like i wanted to be there and my life certainly with each passing year has changed for a tremendous appreciation for history and culture and the arts. And I write about it and direct things, etc. cetera. Um, but what do you think, um, risking general, uh, a generalization, but what do you think about the typical American citizen and their connection and or appreciation with our history or knowledge of our history? Disagree with your, uh, your your comments, or even your uh, your experience as a young person. Uh, I think that Americans actually are very much intrigued with history and culture and politics and and uh, and the arts. <clears throat> and we see that by the web stats. Ah. Everyone uses the internet. Wonderful. And now, having said that, 
one of my concerns is that the internet and I'll mention a name, Google, Google's um, uh, indexing is just a marvel of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So anyone can find anything on the internet. Yes. And a lot of that has to do with what, what you know, the topics I just mentioned. Yes. However, the internet is not really critiqued or vetted or uh, it's not indexed in the way that library catalogs are. Uh. So it's easy to go in and find something on James A. Garfield. Yes. And you will find one or two good sites at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And then you may find eight or 10 or 50 or 500 mm -hmm. uh, things on the internet that are not very good. Mm -hmm. And so. I'm just going to take a minute or two and talk about our Enlighten the People project. Okay, I'm going to this interrupt, is... if you don't mind, Jack. We're going to yes. start with that in the next segment. We need to take a break, okay. but I'm Perfect. glad I asked the question. I'm looking forward to it, uh, stay, to the answer. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with Jack Robinson. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. On the surface, some films don't appear to have much of a story. We gain our satisfaction from characters on a journey. And slice-of-life films can soar simply by an artful observance of one encapsulated element of the human condition. Gloria tells the story of a middle-aged Chilean woman who finds herself essentially alone. She was married once, but her husband has broken through the fence. She has kids, but was strong enough to let them move on with their own lives. Now she faces the world bravely, seeking companionship and fun. She finds, however, that those interested in her are weighed down by the detritus of life. Gloria puts herself out there. She doesn't shy away from any adventure life may have to offer. She refuses to accept that her days of joy are over. They will not be. If there is pain in trying, so be it. We could observe her life and wince at the million hurts that light piles on and wonder, is there a point? But then we observe Gloria dancing, awkwardly, alone, giving wings to her spirit, caring little for the judgment of others, and suddenly we realize what we have here is a story of victory and a lesson for us all. Gloria, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk radio show. My guest today is Jack Robertson, one of the three librarians at Monticello's Jefferson Library. And we, I had to cut him off, I'm sad to say. It was so fascinating, but we're going to jump right back in. Can you tell us about the Enlightenment of the People Project, Jack? Did I get that right? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, we... Uh... Well, let me, let me just say that one of my favorite Thomas Jefferson quotations is the following. Mm. Enlighten the people generally, and tyranny and oppressions of body and mind will vanish like evil spirits at the dawn of day. Mm. End quote. Absolutely. So, so that, that is one of my favorite quotations uh, as he is endorsing education. Yes. Uh, educating the people, enlighten the people. 
And so we've, we have uh, uh, taken that quotation for our project in which we are uh, listing internet sites that have reliable historical information mm. and can be searched in, uh, uh, in various ways and within the search a set uh, of, of hits, mm. uh, of, of findings, can be accumulated on any conceivable topic. Oh. And so uh, just a few examples that we have created mm -hmm. to demonstrate this principle. Uh, Jefferson's agrarian philosophy. Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Uh, Thomas Jefferson for homeschoolers. Uh -huh. uh, distilling in the age of Jefferson. So in other words, <laughs> I mean, I'm just giving kind of a diversity sure. uh, because these these three uh, accurate uh, information sites on the internet uh, cover the whole universe of knowledge. These are these are all um, uh, o open source and uh, uh, agendaless sites, so they uh -huh. have no agenda. And so anyone can use them for any topic, for any purpose, for any goal, uh, and uh, cr create their own form of enlightenment. So that's what that's what we're trying to promote, and what certainly Thomas Jefferson tried to promote in uh, training and broadening the minds of his fellow Americans. Yes. Wow. That is so, you know, because I find it so ironic, as you were mentioning earlier, there's so much available on the Internet, but not all of it. Well, even, even the best of it is not always in-depth. It's sort of superficial. But there is a lot of information, and yet I feel like we are communicating less with each other and that many of our most precious gift, it's not actually a right in the Constitution, as people think, but it is a gift, it is a privilege, and that is to vote, to elect people like Thomas Jefferson, should we ever find another? <laughs> but, um, but we do so without really digging deeply for information, for in-depth issues. There are a lot of Americans I know who are always screaming about, what about the issues? We're not interested in this or that, you know, personality or emails or whatever. What about the issues? And they're not always answered, so I'm not saying it's the American public uh, that's at fault, but to have something like this so readily available that you are, you, are, uh, you and the people at Monticello Jefferson Library are making available online, it's a great guide to the best source. It's, it's not only information, but it's the best information, and you help us find it. I mean, wow. How? Well, it's and in addition, it's a methodology. Yes, it's something that anyone can use, adapt to their own purposes and their own sources. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be. I mean, you asked me before the break about Americans' interest in history yes. and so on, and I, I responded. I tried to say that. Well, I think there's still a fair amount of yes. interest. Yes. Uh, I think that. That it has become like the internet, uh, a pretty quick and superficial and easy uh, 
got the result of a quick Google search, and that's it. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not it. Mm. Uh, you know, that's just uh, scratching the surface and not always scratching the right places on the surface. <laughs> well, it is a. I'm thinking one particular site that I ne never use because it's not accurate. It's very popular, I know. Um, I don't know that I want to mention its name. That begins with a W. Yeah, don't, don't, admit, <laughs> don't admit that you even know it. I know, exactly. But there is information available, uh, and, yes, as, yes. and certainly what you are suggesting uh, with the Enlightenment and the People Project, it uh, is incredibly in-depth, and as you say, it's easy. Let's move on to, to um, getting back to Thomas Jefferson specifically. I, I'm sure there are controversial issues that swirl around any leader, but how, when people come to the, uh, or ask, email to ask for an appointment to visit the Monticello's Jefferson Library, do you have to deal with, or how do you respond to any of the uh, historical controversies that have become known and quite widely publicized? Right. Well, sure, of course, we do. I mean, it's, I, I won't say that we promote it, but uh, because Jefferson was and is so deeply admired, mm -hmm. he, he's really a touchstone for people who love him and people who hate him and use him as an exemplar of uh, good and evil. And so the controversies swirl. Mm -hmm. uh, from my point of view, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. we, we in the library collect comprehensively. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, published and unpublished and digital material that covers all points of view, all interpretations, anything that has ever been said or uh, depicted uh, about Thomas Jefferson, we collect. Wow. And then, and then we, we preserve it, we catalog it, it's all available. I should mention that we have the um, Thomas Jefferson portal. Mm. which is our online library catalog, but it, it, it is much more than that. So it is a place to go to begin research on anything, Jefferson and slavery, Jefferson mm. and women, uh, Jefferson and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and the results in the Thomas Jefferson portal will be very ecumenical. Mm-hmm very multifaceted mm -hmm. and will give people, first of all, a realization that there are multifacets to any given query or yes. any given topic. And then if, they, if, if there's interest, uh, pursuing more of that information, not very much of what it can be found in the portal is full text online, mm -hmm. I, I should say that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, but it is a discovery tool. Sure. Uh, using our Thomas Jefferson portal, uh, anyone on the world internet can begin to delve into Thomas Jefferson and uh, currency, mm -hmm. or Thomas Jefferson and the, the, the metric system. Not very controversial, I suppose, but still <laughs> things that uh, were controversial at, at certain time, 
and uh, Thomas Jefferson and westward expansion, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and so on. And what I really like is um, things like Thomas Jefferson and the Civil War, mm. or Thomas Jefferson and uh, pacifism. So in other words, taking Thomas Jefferson and his thoughts, ideas, legacy into the 19th and into the 20th centuries. Wow. And, of course, he he certainly was, as we said at the top of the show, or you said, because of his far-reaching curiosity, intellect, research, writing, there is much there uh, that is uh, eclectic. Uh, there's much there uh, that um, when one can get even close to the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it is it is an amazing umbrella for us for understanding and, as you say, enlightenment. Yeah. Wow. Well, I I, I I like what you just said. I I like that you said the truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, I'll take slight issue with that because there is so much that is not the truth. How do we know it's the truth? Yeah. I mean, what was true 120 years ago wasn't true uh, 80 years ago mm. and may have become true again 40 years ago yeah. and, and so on. And uh, that's partly why... Every year, there are an average of 400 new publications about Thomas Jefferson. Yes. You'd think, you'd think that they had written everything there was to do about mm. Thomas Jefferson, but no, certainly not. Certainly not. There's always more to investigate and interpret and extrapolate from, especially from, the new resources that these... Um, full-text digital archives provide to us. Well, excellent. I'm glad you made that point. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm going to tell a quick story. I promise it will be quick, but it just reminds me, we mentioned so much about Thomas Jefferson, but we are talking about his time, the time in which he lived, the era, and how he affected, you know, centuries after his time. And I'm when I first came to visit the Charlottesville area, I love history, as I said, and I drive around the back countries, and I look, of course, I just follow the signs, and I've, of course, been to uh, Mount Vernon and Monticello and Ashlawn. But when I went to uh, Montpelier, it was before it has been renovated, and beautifully so, uh, you couldn't get in. And so I drove around back roads just looking, and I found a chain, just a chain over a road, parked the car, walked over the chain, walked into uh, Montpelier, the grounds, uh, to the cemetery where Dolly, Dolly Madison as well as the president are buried and and, and a right. worker came over and, and I started asking questions. He was full of great information and I guess I'm just trying to say uh, history is oral as well as the internet and uh, to encourage people to visit uh, you um, a, 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 after the email, we should mention the email again, at Monticello's Jefferson Library. Shall we mention that email well, again how they would get it? Yes. Yes, it's library at Monticello.org. All right. I wanted, I guess I kind of strayed a bit on that story, but it made me, because I was looking around on the various websites for your organization, your library, tell us a bit about the men who lost America. That is a magnificent book published now, two or three years ago, by mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, who is the director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the is 
a component of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, and the Jefferson Library is a component of the International Center. So uh, the Men Who Lost America is a really magnum opus of Andrew uh, about the the British individuals mm-hmm. who were uh, instrumental in making decisions or uh, or resisting decisions about what to do with their American colonies. Wow. And I mean, just to uh, cut to the chase, uh-huh. uh, Andrew brings uh, ten or twelve individuals to life. So it's sort of narrative biography uh, of these uh, these key individuals in. Uh, the United Kingdom that had that played a major role in what turned out to be losing America. Wow. Uh, there was much going on in England, and, and speaking of Europe, we know Thomas Jefferson is president, but some forget he was also Secretary of State and, and spent a great deal of time in France and Europe on behalf of America. Care to uh, tell us a bit more about uh, that aspect? And of course, Lewis and Clark, he is responsible for that, and the Louisiana Purchase, etc. I know I've thrown out a lot, but you can add to yeah. it. Jefferson was a great wanderer. He mm-hmm. spent his whole life wandering. A lot of the wandering was done through books. Mm. Uh, a lot, a lot uh, uh, other was through correspondence. Jefferson was for 17 years president. Mm. This is a trick, trick lie that I like to quote. He was uh-huh. president of the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Mm. He was a lifelong member, and so uh, that is another way that Jefferson could travel. He did travel. He spent five years in France mm-hmm. uh, between 1780, from 1784 to 1789, he witnessed the raising of the Bastille at the beginning of the French Revolution. Yes. And uh, he traveled a good deal, so he did the same things that I've already mentioned Mm -hmm. while he was in France. He talked to people, he bought books, he he traveled, and uh, always made notes. Mm -hmm. So we know Jefferson quite well because he made so many lists. Yes. And through his books. So we now have a better grasp on all of the books that Jefferson owned in his lifetime because we we here at the Jefferson Library have been uh, compiling for the first time ever a complete list hmm. of Jefferson's approximately 9,000 books. Wow. Uh, and uh, so he, he traveled in many ways. Uh, uh, I'm not certain what your original question was. Well, that uh, was a beautiful answer, whatever it was. (laughs) I just wanted us, and you you certainly answered it. My question was that we sometimes think, you you know, of of Jefferson as president, but we forget he served as a secretary of state in in France and uh, uh, Lewis and Clark and Louisiana Purchase, all of that. But he's done so much more, and you you certainly covered that extremely well. Well, I... um, I do want one quick little question, I, uh, just my personal curiosity. Can you tell us a little about the OLLI, O-L-L-I program? Uh, yes, uh, I'd be happy to. That is a, uh, oh dear, I don't know that I can remember the, 
what the O-L-L-I stands for, but it's essentially a lifelong learning program mm. that is headquartered at the university. It is really a an independent organization, mm-hmm. uh, and they offer hundreds of classes taught frequently by retired faculty members mm. or individuals in the community mm-hmm. that have uh, enthusiasm and experience and expertise in, uh, well, I mean, it's just an amazing array of classes. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to be five or six sessions, uh, two terms in the fall and two terms in the spring. So Mm -hmm. uh, I would highly recommend anyone interested in continuing to explore any area of interest, uh, art history or linguistics or rhetoric theology or uh, I I am teaching a class on the presidential libraries mm. uh, I with my, one of my volunteer colleagues um, Ralph Bledsoe who happens to be the founding director of the Ronald Reagan presidential library oh wow so, so we have some pretty amazing people here in Charlottesville and here at the Jefferson Library Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to go soon. So what I would like, uh, uh, Jack Robertson, if you could remind us again of the website, uh, the portal and the email address so people can reach out to you. Okay. Well, I think uh, first and foremost is library at monticello.org. That's uh, our direct email to the library. Uh, Somebody can send something to me to that address, and it will get to me. Okay. The website is um, simply monticello.org, and then you can take a uh, – it's a brand-new website, so I strongly recommend taking a visit and meandering and browsing and – searching and finding the Jefferson Library, and there you can find the Enlighten the People Project, the Thomas Jefferson Portal, and uh, last but certainly not least, the button you you hit uh, if you want to make a donation. Fantastic. That's just a joke. (laughs) No, well, donations are appreciated as well as enlightenment, Uh, yes. Well, we just like people. You know, we, we in the library are here to serve. Exactly. So, you know, anyone, anyone, contact us. All right. We have been talking to Jack Robertson, who is one of the three librarians at Monticello's Jefferson Library, just across the way from Monticello. And um, it has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And we thank you so very much, uh, uh, Jack, for being on the show with us, being our guest today and, and teaching us so so skillfully. Thank you. You're, you're quite welcome. All right, then. We'll see you soon. All the best to all very of good. you. Bye now. Yes. Goodbye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Andy Film Minute. It's fitting that the climatic action of Selma occurs on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. 
Ironically, the bridge was named after a famed Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, and so it remains today an iconic monument to white supremacy as well as a powerful reminder of the demand for an end to racial injustice. This is neither a feel-good Hollywood biopic nor a Disney-fied look at the movement itself. King is shown, warts and all, and the movement is shown to be as messy as any endeavor so critical to so many players on so many sides. History is a quagmire, and it's a brave soul who takes on a subject so dear in the hearts of so many. In fact, considerable controversy has arisen over Selma's depiction of Lyndon Johnson and his role in the voting rights quest. Still, the film rings true, and it has not lost a whit of its relevance for today. Petty controversy aside, this is a fine, worthy film, both painful and joyous. Selma, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at indiefilmminute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Thinking, from Pearl Harbor to Standing Rock to Donald Trump. Seventy-five years ago, Europe-not-our-problem Americans were bombed into a superpower, home of the brave, armored in self-appointed responsibility, the greatest generation, a global defense to protect the world from all who would dominate it, except we ourselves. Seventy-five years later, conservatives, holding the truth of their intentions close to their chests, retrograded America to the right side of isolationism. Consumed by desire for simplicity, simple solutions to compounded personal interests, manipulated by a military-industrial complex misdirecting us with government is the problem, we now gasp for truth, mistaking affirmation for information, nearing drowning in post-Bush Cheney Wall Street tea-stained recession, thinking fails to kick in to stop a Coke Alec GOP Christianowski red-mapped trumped land. Nonetheless, hope is just a Trump overreach away, unity at the end of a short-sighted Republican tunnel and even perhaps 2020 civility on the horizon, as soon as we start rethinking our own thoughts about how we think for and beyond ourselves. Enlightenment is the only true revelation revolution. Like media hyping anything for increased ratings, most politicians, groping or not, will say anything to get elected. So, while some share and others endure the responsibility of a Trump administration, bear us the pointless battle of negative labels. This is our opportunity to reignite collective reasoning by taking a break to eliminate the fake news we've ingested, and with gratitude embrace the chance to redefine ourselves progressive and thoughtful enough to welcome back those feeling forgotten when the realization they've been used by the very establishment on which they depend and abhor, reveals its maniacal dismissal of our shared economic and health care concerns. Donald Trump is hardly the first misogynistic bigot 
we've elected to the presidency. Though he may be the first to openly tweet Islamophobia as a national policy, he's certainly not the first potential 1600 inhabitant to be gay about being openly homophobic. Nor is he alone in presidential inner circles of crude. And though grossly internationally inept, our attention must be paid to the increase in clueless governors and members of Congress on the take. As history has proven, finding or creating an enemy to identify as the cause of all our problems is an easy but essential tool for the powerful to blame-game the populace populists into believing in their powerlessness, so they fall in line following the loudest trumpeter of disharmony. We know those Americans on the list of less American than we, the indigenous, the slaves, the interned, and women constitutionally kept in their place throughout American history. To the party that long ago replaced its allegiance to Lincoln with affirmations of intolerance and inciting extremism and misinformation, I offer reason. It's not only bigotry and hypocrisy that drive the underbelly of humanity's faceless and infamous antagonists casting long shadows over human progress. It's the lies we tell ourselves, like our success and prosperity require others to live in poverty, or people of color are killing our white culture, or earning a college degree equates to being a liberal elitist. And one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves, Wall Street hedge fund, oil and gas pipeline, and banking CEOs who caused international economic collapse and our Great Recession care about Americans of any color color. Think about it. Our inner cities are not inhabited by only poor people of color. The burden of student loan and credit card debt is color-blind and impacts our international reputation, sense of national self, and confidence levels of all American tints and hues. And, unlike Flint, government and people power have spared the Dakota Sioux tribe and its clean water. America is neither sitcom nor reality show. So while it's arguably true that Trump embarrasses us all, the difference is those who either voted for him or not at all gave him permission. We need to start thinking about how we've been marketed to think. Because in a global role where the world has taken us seriously, the highest office in the land must be trustworthy enough to be taken literally. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the Reasonable Voices 
heard round the world.